We are continuing our series today on the book of James. Uh, last week, we talked about wisdom, and we talked specifically about godly wisdom versus earthly wisdom and, and the difference between those two things uh, and how really godly wisdom is it's, it's a fast forward for us. It takes us places we could have never taken ourselves, and earthly wisdom seems sharp and, and bright at the time, but at the end of the day, that's exactly what it is. It's earthly wisdom. Uh, it, it's not something that helps us or advances us. It, it ultimately doesn't change us like godly wisdom does. Uh, and we talked specifically about how wisdom applied, godly wisdom applied to our relationships will bring health and bring unity. Um, instead of asking questions like, is this sinful or will I go to hell if I do this? If we ask questions like, is this the wise choice for me right now? That's a better question to ask because it will take us to better places. Um, it just keeps us from getting into places we shouldn't be and going places we shouldn't go. And so we talked about all this and how, how at the end of the day, God wants, and James was talking to the church about bringing unity to the body of Christ. But that applies to your, your marriage, your home, your workplace as well. The last verse we looked at was James 3.18. It says, and a harvest of righteousness is seen in peace by those who make peace. Uh, again, we're talking about making peace in relationships. And how in order to see righteousness in our lives, we have to sow the seed of peace. Uh, we have to be a peacemaker. In Matthew chapter five, it says, blessed are the peacemakers. So we see that this is really important. And so we transition right from that to this thought we're gonna go into in James chapter four, verse one. And this is what it says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now, the word passions here comes from the Greek word hedone. And that is not, uh, might not mean anything to you, but hedone is where we get the English word hedon. And hedon, um, hedonistic, it's, it's not, that is not a compliment. Um, the word hedon, it means a selfish or self-centered or having a self-centered desire. Uh, a hedonistic idea is all about what it can do for me or how it can take care of me or how it will help me. It has very little to do with has nothing to do, in fact, with how it can help those around us. It's totally self-centered. So what James is saying here is, what causes quarrels and fights among you? And, and then he answers his own question, and he said, it's that your passions or your selfish desires are at war within you. And whether we realize it or not, all of us are inherently selfish. Um, before I got married, I thought I had this selfish thing under control. I thought, man, I, I live selflessly. I know how to help others and bless others. And then I got married, <laughs> right? Did anybody experience that? And you're like, holy cow, I'm the most selfish person I've ever seen in my life. Like, because what does marriage do? It sanctifies us. It, it helps shine a bright light in some of the areas of our lives. And sometimes your spouse is the one shining the bright light. Anyway, so you get married and you're like, oh my gosh, I thought I was selfless, but man, I was, I was selfish. Man, now I got my stuff together. And now, man, we are selfless people. And then you have kids and you realize, oh my gosh, I was really selfish. But now, right? So there's these levels of sanctification that happen in our lives as we enter into relationships in these new areas. Um, and it's absolutely true. We are selfish people. And in our hearts, there's this conflict. There's this war that is being raged by what God wants us to be and what our flesh says we are. And our flesh says we're selfish. But God says he doesn't want us to live that way anymore. He wants us to think differently. He wants to be different. 
In Luke chapter 22, we talked about this last week, the disciples, they were at this, this holy, godly moment of communion. They received the Last Supper with Jesus and immediately following the Last Supper, literally hours before Jesus would be crucified, they have a fight over who's gonna be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And this is the disciples. So if the disciples can fight about who's gonna be the best in the kingdom, how much more are we prone to this? And this is what they, I mean, again, this is their, their, their place. How do they get to that point where they're fighting over that? Well, they all had selfish desires. They had this hedonistic desire to be number one. I wanna be the greatest in the kingdom. No, I wanna be the greatest in the kingdom. And that led them to that place. So how much more prone are we to this idea in our marriages or in our workplaces? Uh, see, the thing I want you to understand today, one of the, the big ideas that I want you to catch is that conflict within us leads to conflict between us. That if I don't take the conflict in my heart and submit it to Christ, it will lead to conflict in relationships with people around me. If I have a selfish desire that I don't rein in and submit to Christ, it's going to lead to a broken relationship around me. Look around at the relationships you have, and I promise you've got a relationship that's not healthy somewhere. If you don't, you need to write a book, and I'll write the foreword for you. We'll both get rich, okay? But this is the thing. You've probably got a relationship that's not super healthy, and what you can do is look at that relationship and say, what part did I have to play in that? At what point did my unhealthiness or did my selfishness cause there to be tension or conflict? And inevitably, you can come back to the, point, the, the fact that conflict within us leads to conflict between us. Internal conflict leads to external conflict. It happens, and it's true. Now, it's not always your fault. Sometimes it's one totally one-sided, but some, I'd say most of the time, there are two parties involved. So we have to ask ourselves, what part did my selfish desires play in this unhealthy relationship? And maybe it was minuscule, but maybe not. But God wants to fix things. He wants us to have healthy relationships. He wants to bring unity to the church, to your home, to your workplace. And the way he does that is by fixing us, fixing our hearts. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul's talking to the Corinthian church. And this is what he says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, and, and I'm sorry, are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So what's he saying? The real weapons in your life for the battle we're fighting are not physical, tangible weapons. It's not a pistol, it's not a knife. He said, it's a spiritual warfare. And he goes on to say, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, this war that's raging within us of these selfish desires and the selfish heart, what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church is, um, is we have to take those thoughts captive. I like action movies. Does anybody like action movies? Have you ever seen where like somebody gets kidnapped off the street before? And this is what I imagine in my mind we have to do. So in, in these movies, you got a, a guy walking along the street and he's just minding his business. <whistles> all right, walking along the street and all of a sudden this white unmarked van pulls up kind of behind him. There's this thug looking guy driving the vehicle and they pull up finally like, vroom, pull up next to him, the door flies open. They put a bag over his head. They throw him into the van. They put zip ties on his wrist. And some of you are a little nervous right now because you think I know way too much about abducting someone. <laughs> You're like, oh, I'm a little uncomfortable now that Mel knows how to take somebody off the street. Uh, I've only done it once and we let them go quickly, so it was fine. 
But in the same way that this person is abducted and, and, and captivated and taken from this street is the same idea I have when I think about this passage of scripture. That when I have a stray thought that's selfish in desire, that it's about me and not someone else, what Paul says we have to do is we have to take that thought captive. We literally have to drive up next to it with an unmarked van, throw a bag over its head and throw it in the van and take it captive. But we don't, we don't approach our thoughts process that way and that aggressively most of the time. Because most of the time what we do is we, we play with those thoughts and we think about it, we nurse it. And go, well, yeah, I really was the victim. I should have gotten more. And I don't know why they got attention. I didn't get attention. And we walk through that. But Paul says, no, 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 no. What you have to do is take that thought captive. You don't let your thought life take you somewhere that you shouldn't be. You, you take it captive in that moment. Because internal conflict leads to external conflict. So he says, before it gets to the outside, you take that thought captive. And you don't let it go somewhere that it shouldn't be going. That's, that's a hard thing to do, though, isn't it? Ever been driving down the road? Maybe you had someplace important to be. Maybe you're a little bit late and somebody cuts you off. All of a sudden, something starts welling up inside of you. Wait a second, what a jerk. I can't believe you cut me off. I'm busy too. Okay, he just made me late. Well, it was five seconds late, like, right? Like tone it down just a little bit. You're gonna be just fine. But that's not the way we think, is it? We're like, this, this guy is being, I can't believe this guy, this jerk. And there's something in me that like, I wanna prove him he's wrong. Have you ever thought about, well, now I'm gonna cut him off, right? We have these crazy thoughts and all, the, all of us guys, we're alpha males and we all think that we're Richard Petty in the Indy 500 whenever we're driving someplace. We wanna race, we wanna be faster and somebody cuts us off and it doesn't matter what's going on, even if we're just gonna be five seconds more late, there's something in us that begins to rise up and then, then it's multiplied, it's even worse. Has have anybody ever had somebody tell you that you're number one when you're driving? You know what I'm talking about? We're keeping it PG, so I'm not gonna show you or be specific, but you know what I'm talking about. And that's what I have to do to make myself feel better. If somebody does that, I just go, oh, they think I'm number one. Oh, that is so sweet. No, I thank you. Thank you, buddy, I appreciate that. Like, oh, that's an encouragement I needed today, right? Man, somebody does that and then just ramps it up even more. Oh, I can't believe and I'm so, what's happening? You've got internal conflict. You're, you're making assumptions about a person in a car that you probably shouldn't make. What if we flip the assumptions instead of saying, this person is evil and they're specifically out to make me late for my meeting, which is usually where we go. What if instead of assuming that, what if we assume the best about somebody? What if we assumed that this is a, a mom or dad who just heard that their child was in an accident and they're trying to get to the scene? Wouldn't that change things quite a bit? What if we extended grace and mercy instead of assuming the worst? That's what we want done for us. If you've ever cut somebody off in traffic and you do the, sorry, right? Like, what, you, what are you doing? You're, you're saying, sorry, please give, give me some grace and mercy, right? Like, that's what we want. I'm sorry I cut you off. So what am I saying? Well, we take captive every thought. Instead of letting our thought run away from us, instead of letting it lead to an external conflict, what if we tied that down inside of us and said, you know what, I'm, I'm not gonna let that thought get away from me. I'm gonna take captive every thought to obey Christ. I'm gonna let the heart of Christ come out. It would change things around us. Now, I'm not even gonna get into application for your marriage or your relationships. What if instead of saying every stupid thing you say to your spouse, you took captive every thought? You think that'd make your marriage better? 
That's how my marriage got better. I started taking captive every other thought. Instead of saying every stupid thing that came out of my, I mean, came into my mind, I started taking captive some of those thoughts and miraculously my marriage got better. Shocking, right? It's crazy what happens when we begin to do this because all of a sudden that internal conflict, it, it, it's tamped down and doesn't lead to an external conflict. In John, uh, James chapter four, verse two, it says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. And you go, well, no, I've never murdered anybody. I've never murdered anybody. That's ridiculous. That's true. You, you probably haven't murdered anybody. But have you, have you ever murdered anybody's character or their good name? Maybe they, you felt like they did you wrong, so you trashed them to your buddies or to your friends. Maybe, maybe you felt like it was true, but you were gossiping about them. You know, you didn't murder them. You didn't hold a gun to their head, but you murdered their character. And this is really what James is talking about. He said, you, des you desire and you do not have, so you murder. So again, he's talking about this internal conflict, this internal selfishness. It leads to an external conflict and external actions. He goes on to say, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. I'm saying this internal conflict is leading to an unhealthiness around us. What do we need to do? We need to wrestle it to the ground. We need to, we need to take every thought captive. He goes on to say, you do not have because you do not ask. I'll stop there. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. There's some of you in the room that are going, no, no, no. I've been asking, Mel. I've been asking, but God's just not giving it to me. I've been asking every day, sometimes twice a day, I'm praying, God, I need a speedboat. And he will not give it to me. God, I need a speedboat. I mean, the bass stopped biting in one place and I gotta get to another. I gotta do it quickly. They're gonna get away. So God, I need to get there fast. I need a speedboat, God, and he won't answer. God must not be a good God. He doesn't love me or he would give me what I want. He doesn't love me or I'd, I'd get what I desire, right? We think that's how it works, but that's not how it works. In fact, I'll show you in the next verse, it says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So again, he brings it back to this, this selfish desire. So he says, sometimes you don't get because you don't ask, but sometimes you ask, but God's not gonna give it to you because he knows that you're just gonna use his blessing Feed your own selfish desires. And this is what we have to understand. Please catch this. God will never be complicit in our sin. God will never help you walk away from him. Sometimes he won't give you a speedboat because he knows if you got a speedboat, you'd never come to church again. Every weekend from now to the day you die, you're gonna be on the lake somewhere. So he's not gonna give you a speedboat. Does that make sense? God, if you'll just help me win the lotto, I'll start giving to the church. And God goes, I can't help you with the lotto. So you're not faithful with your giving now. You're not faithful with your finances now. You're flat broke. If I give you $300 million, you're gonna be in an even bigger mess than you are now. So stop praying for the lotto. Because God can't do that. God's not gonna take you someplace that leads you away from him. So what we have to start saying is, God, help me pray your heart. Help me pray the way you want me to. Help me value the world and the things the way you value them. And it's amazing when we discover the heart of Christ and we start living and praying that way, how our prayers just start popping, how things begin to happen when we stop praying for things like a speedboat. Is there anything wrong with a speedboat? No, absolutely not. But if that's what our soul desire is, we're probably in trouble. So we have to start praying, God, what is your heart? What is your desire? Instead of praying selfish prayers, he said, you do not have because you do not ask. Sometimes 
we're not praying big enough prayers. I, I've said this before. <clears throat> I wanna pray big, bold, audacious prayers. I, I don't wanna pray, God, help us, help us see some people saved this year. I wanna pray, God, we wanna see 500 people come to know Jesus this year. That, that's what I wanna pray. God, I, I don't wanna just say, help us have a good church. I want us to pray, God, help us be a church that changes our world. And you go, whoa, 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 Mel. Changes our world. We're in Indiana, PA. Why couldn't we be a church that changes our world? I absolutely think we can. Let's pray for that. Let's pray big prayers. Because there are times that, that God says, and James says here, that we have not because we ask not. We're not asking for big things. We're not praying for big things that, that line up with the heart of God. So I wanna begin to pray that way. But what I want us to do is ca be cautious about praying that are, for things that are simply our passions or our desires. He goes on in verse four to say, hey, and let me pause here. If you think uh, I've been a little rough on you so far, it's only gonna get worse, okay? <laughs> like it does not get better. So just buckle up and hang on. It's gonna get worse for a few minutes. So verse four says this, you adulterous people. Like he's not trying to win any votes, is he? Like he's not sucking up to the, constitu uh, the, con the constituency. He says, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And enmity is just, uh, it's, it's, the idea that we are actively opposed to. We're in rebellion to God. So it makes us literally on the other side of the ball from God when we have enmity with God. So he says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. And then he clarifies and says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? <clears throat> now, I wanna sanitize this and make it the PG version a little bit, but adultery basically <clears throat> is when someone is in a covenant marriage relationship and they go outside the, the boundaries of that relationship to find fulfillment somewhere else. <clears throat> now, typically it's defined as, <coughs> excuse me, typically it's defined as a physical relationship but if you've ever been the victim of an emotional affair, you know how damaging and how hurtful and how painful that can be. So I will say, if you leave the, the boundaries of that covenant marriage, that covenant relationship to find fulfillment somewhere else and any other person or thing, that could be described for our purposes as, as adultery. Now it's interesting because James says here, you adulterous people. So what is he saying? Is he saying that all the people that are hearing this letter or reading this letter have committed adultery, that they have cheated on their spouse? Is that what he's saying? Well, no, not exactly. What he's saying is that, I'll just say it real bluntly, he's saying that we're cheating on God because he says, you are the bride of Christ. You're in covenant relationship with God, and yet what we've done is we say, God, you're my everything, you're my all in all, I love you so much, you're the savior of my life, um, but I have these needs that I'm gonna find uh, fulfillment in in other places. And there are people in this room that we would never do that to our spouse. We wouldn't dream of that. But yet every day we do it with God. And this is not just a message for you, this is a message for me. I've told you before, I'm an emotional eater. I'm having a bad day, I'm struggling, things are going bad, man, what do I do? I, I wanna go, get some, I'm gonna go get some ice cream. And if it's uh, peanut butter Oreo swirl, game on, right? Like, 
We're not gonna get the kitty. We're, we're doing a large. Well, I'm gonna knock it out. I'm gonna go eat some ice cream and I'm gonna feel better. Do you know what I've just done? I've committed adultery because I'm in covenant relationship with God, but I'm finding my fulfillment, I'm finding my completion or my wholeness somewhere else. I'm saying, God, you're God, but I don't know if you can help me with this, but you know what can help me? Some ice cream. If we're gonna be honest, a lot of us do the same thing. Yours might look a little different though. It might be shopping. And let me, let me break it to you guys, I'm sorry, that's not just a woman thing. There are lots of guys I know, they have a bad day and they go buy a four-wheeler. They go buy a gun and they, they can just, well, this is to defend my family. No, it's because you had a bad day and you wanna make yourself feel better. What are we doing? It's adultery. We're saying, I wanna find fulfillment, I wanna find peace, I wanna find, I wanna feel better about myself, so I'm gonna look somewhere besides the God of the universe. I'm in covenant relationship, I'm the bride of Christ, and yet I go searching all over the place to make myself feel better. And we're all guilty of it if we're not careful. We have to be cognizant, we have to be aware of what we're doing, we have to be aware of the condition of our heart, we have to guard ourselves to make sure that we don't do that. The end of that passage, it says, it's talking about God, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made dwell in us. Now, a couple of weeks ago or last week, we talked about uh, jealousy and selfish ambition. And the jealousy we see here from God is a very different kind of jealousy than we experience. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> this is not like um, the junior high or senior high, thank you, where you see um, some girl has worn some other boy's letter jacket and the boy goes, I can't believe it. I can't, I'm so angry. I'm so, that's my girl. That's not that kind of jealousy. Because you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Some of you are not too far removed from that. But let me, let me paint a little bit of a different picture for you. The jealousy we're looking at here uh, is probably more akin to um, not jealousy the way we would define it, but jealousy as we would see it uh, with ancient Israel. And even in, in Israeli culture today, you still see this some. Um, but typically what would happen is if I had a daughter and I was um, in, in a Jewish culture and I was Jewish heritage, um, I would pick my daughter's husband, which I don't think is all bad. I'm, I'm pro picking my daughter's husband, by the way. I would pick my daughter's husband and then it was my responsibility to make, my, make sure my daughter stayed pure until the, the wedding night. And so if something happened and my daughter didn't, for whatever reason, stay pure, it wasn't her fault, it was my fault because I was the guardian of her chastity. I was the one who's supposed to guard that and protect that. And so if, if a father was ever responsible for a daughter in that condition, it could be said that he was jealous. But it's not that he was jealous of his daughter or jealous of what was going on. Really what was going on is that, that his heart was grieved over the situation, that he, he was heartbroken, that, that it, it did not go the way he had wanted it to go. And it had nothing to do with his reputation. It had everything to do with his heart being broken over the situation. So what we have to see is, is this is the context. So when James says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, what we have to understand is that God's not standing there like some junior high kid going, I can't believe they're doing that. I can't believe they're going there. That's not what God's doing. He's grieving over us like a father would a daughter. And he sees us and sees our condition and he's heartbroken. He said, it didn't have to be like that. 
oh, I wish, I wish it could have been different. So when we see that our God is a jealous God, we have to understand that it's very different than the jealousy we think of. That we serve a God is merciful and gracious and loving and caring. And when we blow it, and yes, we will blow it. Everyone in this room is gonna mess up and you're probably gonna mess up big time. We all do. When we mess up, our God is not a God that's gonna say, I told you so, I knew you'd do this. That's not him. He's heartbroken over us. He's heartbroken over his kids. He, he, he wants to reconcile things. He wants to make things right. See, he's deposited his spirit in us and we are responsible for taking that spirit with us wherever we go. That means not just the good things, but the bad things. Whenever we engage in something online, it's a good thing or a bad thing. We're taking the spirit of God with us. When we're engaging in relationships, when we're engaging in conversations, we're engaging in, um, in whatever it might be, whether it's good or bad, we're taking the spirit with us. So God yearns jealously over that spirit as we go to and fro, as we live our lives. He sees that and he wants something better for us. He desires something more for us because he is a good father. James 4, 6 says this, but he gives more grace. Aren't you thankful for that, that he gives more grace? That when we're tempted, he gives us grace. Now, this is the thing I want you to understand. He doesn't just give us enough grace to save us from our sin. So when we sin and when we mess up, that he's got enough grace to cover it. But, but I want you to understand this, that we can live victoriously because his grace is big enough, not just to cleanse us or wash us from our sin, but his grace is big enough to help us not live in habitual, perpetual sin. Did you catch that? You don't have to live in the bondage of sin that you've lived in. You can be free from that. God's grace is big enough. It's not just big enough to forgive you, it's big enough to keep you and hold you and secure you in a place where you're not a victim to that habitual sin over and over and over. Therefore it said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If we live with a prideful spirit, the kind of spirit that says, I can do it myself, I don't need God's help, God says, I'm gonna be opposed to you. Not only is God not going to help you, he is going to be opposed to you. Of all the opposition you can have in your life, I'm telling you, the one you do not want is the God of the universe. <laughs> you, you think the devil is tough. I'm telling you, if you live with pride in your life, God will oppose you, and that's even tougher. He says, but God gives grace to the humble. When we say, God, I need your help. I can't do this on my own. God is faithful to come alongside us. God is faithful to empower us and equip us to live the life that he wants us to live, that he's dreamed for us to live. Verse seven says, submit yourself to God, uh, therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What do we see here? We see some imperative statements. Submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God. I'm thankful that we serve a God that it's not running from us. In fact, he's running to us. It says here, if we draw near to God, he draws near to us. We take a step toward God, guess what? God is stepping toward us. So maybe feel like you are pursuing him and he's trying to get away from you. That's not the case at all. We press into him, he presses into us. Draw near to him. If you feel distant to God, if you feel uh, dry in your spiritual life, I would, I would encourage you, take a step toward God and see what happens. He will always match you. He will always take a step toward you. It says here, cleanse your hands, you sinners. 
Purify your hearts, you double-minded. I wanna remind you, he's talking to the church. He's not talking to, uh, to a bunch of lost people. He's talking to the church, people who believe in Jesus, that believe he's the son of God. And he says here, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Um, years ago, we were on a long road trip and Abby was little. I don't even think Emma was born at the time. Abby is 14 now. At the time, I think she was about two. And we stopped at a truck stop. And this was not a clean state-of-the-art truck stop. This was a little bit of a rough truck stop. And um, not to be stereotypical, big truckers, rough looking, some motorcycle, you know, we got some motorcycle riders in here. We, we love you guys. You can be intimidating to some people though big and rough, and so it was that kind of truck stop. So we get to this truck stop, and it was my turn to take Abby to the restroom, so okay. So I took her in the men's restroom, and truck stop restroom, not the cleanest, you're not eating off the floor in that place, right? So we go in, in the big stall, and so she's sitting there, and you know kids, when you, they need to go to the bathroom, it, can t it's, it takes forever. Like, I felt like I was grolled and die in that room, because she was just just doing her thing. So she's sitting on the toilet, sitting there, just legs dangling, and I'm looking away, trying to give her some privacy in the stall. And all these guys were coming and going throughout the restroom. And um, it was pretty quiet. You could hear some guy walked in, clump, 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 clump. And he goes to the restroom and immediately, clump, 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 and the door opens and it squeaks open. And as soon as the door opens, Abby says loudly, Daddy, that boy didn't even wash his hands. I was like, shut up. Why are you saying that? You hate daddy, don't you? Because I was imagining some gigantic bear-sized trucker was gonna rip the door off the hinges and just beat daddy to death while she was going potty there, right? Like, that's what I was imagining. And so we sat there, just total silence. And it, was, it felt like 15 minutes, but it, it was like two seconds. So we're standing there and I'm like, <gasps> like didn't even wanna breathe. The door doesn't close, and all of a sudden you hear the footsteps, clump, 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 and then you hear the water turn on. <laughs> he decided he was convinced he needed to wash his hands for some reason. But washing your hands is important, isn't it? Flu, cold and flu season roll around, you don't want to get cold and flu, you've been shaking people's hands, you wash your hands, you put hand sanitizer on, right? Some of you put it on liberally. You live with hand sanitizer on all the time. You go into restaurants and the bathrooms, on the mirrors it says, all employees are required to wash their hands. Why? Because they're trying to keep contamination from happening. Say so if your hands get contaminated, you get something on your hands, you don't wanna contaminate other things, right? And this is what James is saying to the church. He said, you're supposed to be a holy, consecrated, set-apart people, and yet we live in the world, so at times our hands might get dirty, but what we have to do is cleanse our hands because God's got a purpose and plan for us. There's a reason why surgeons spend 10 or 15 minutes washing their hands before they go to surgery. It's because they wanna remove contamination. They don't wanna cause infection. And yet sometimes we're so flippant about what we're involved in in this world that we don't realize that our hands are filthy. And then we go to do what God has asked us to do and we don't understand why there's problems. It's because we have filthy hands. It's because we've been involved in things that we shouldn't be involved in. And James is calling us to repentance, calling us to live a life of holiness and, and purity and righteousness before God. Verse nine, he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What, what is this saying? 
Is this saying we're all supposed to be sad and gloomy all the time? No. What it's saying is, in in this context, is that culturally, people were making light of their sin. People were making jokes, and it was bringing levity to the situation. Oh, you, you, oh you've, been, you've been cheating on your wife? Oh, I can't believe that. Man, you should stop. And he says, that's not the way it's supposed to be. He said, when you recognize your own sinfulness, you should mourn and grieve and weep over your situation and over your condition because we realize we serve a holy, righteous God. And when we have sin in our life, there's a gulf, there's a separation between us and God. And James says, the appropriate response for sin in our lives is to grieve and mourn. And you go, well, what about the joy? And what about the happiness? What about the dancing? Well, that comes when salvation happens. God brings the joy and the the holiness and the righteousness and the the mourning will last for a night, but joy, or sorrow shall last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. The sorrow is because of our sinful condition and our nature and joy comes when we recognize salvation in our life. Does that make sense? So don't get me wrong. There's plenty of joy. There's plenty of celebration, but we have to recognize our own sinfulness before a holy God. And the only response to that is to humbly bow before him, is to put away the levity and the the lightness of sin and to recognize the fact that uh, we're sinful people that need God. See, we humble ourselves before the Lord and he will exalt us. When we acknowledge our need for him, that's when he can lift us up. Verse 11 says this, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you do not, uh, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now listen, uh, this is a little bit confusing. But he's saying here, if you judge a brother, you're not judging him, but you're judging the law. So what's the law he's talking about? I believe he's talking about the royal law that Jesus talked about. Jesus was asked, um, what is the greatest of all the laws? And Jesus said, uh, basically twofold. He said, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then he says, and also love your neighbor as yourself. So if you do those two things, that basically wraps up the law. And so I believe this is what James was talking about here. And he said, so if you judge a brother and you're being prideful and you say, well, they messed up. I would never mess up like they messed up. Can you believe they messed up like that? <laughs> I must be, I'm a, I'm a lot better standing than I thought I was because I would never do that. If you do that, that's an unrighteous judge. And what we're doing is we're not judging the person. We're actually judging the law. We're judging the law that says, love your neighbor as yourself. And what we're saying is that law is not for me. If Jesus knew what I knew, he would be okay with me gossiping about these people because they're not very good people. So what we're doing essentially is we're judging the law and saying that law doesn't count. That law is not applicable. That law is no good. So what James is saying is you think you're judging a person, but you're not. You're judging the law. And you're saying what Jesus said is worthless. Now, a lot of us will default back to Matthew chapter seven Verse one, and even people who don't go to church know this verse. And, and my proof is if you challenge them on something they do and you, go, you, should, you think you should really be doing that or should be living that way, they will quote it. And the, way, the reason I know that is because I've heard it said before. And they will say, uh, judge not lest you be judged. And they even quote it in the King James. So it's just serious, it's for real, right? They said the ye in there. Judge not lest you be judged. They don't know where it's found. They don't even know who said it, but they just know what's in there. And they will throw that out. And it's true. 
But that's not exactly the right context because what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter seven, verse one, is a judgment um, that is out to squash someone else or, or punish someone else. He goes on to say, for the, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So he's saying, if you judge from a prideful heart, you're gonna be judged with a prideful heart. So if you go, oh man, I can't believe they messed up. Well, they deserved it. They had it coming. That's how you're gonna be judged when you mess up. Because guess what? You will mess up, just like I will. So he says, judge the way you wanna be judged. So how about if we judge with mercy and grace? We go, hey, you know what? I know you messed up, but I know you better than that. I know your heart. I know that's not who you are. So let's restore you. Let's walk this out. Let's fix this. Let's make this right. Because that's the way I wanna be judged. And that's, that's what Jesus says here. In John chapter seven, Jesus says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with a righteous judgment. So he's not saying judging is wrong, but he's saying judge correctly, judge righteously with a heart that restores and reconciles and brings hope to a body and to unity to a people instead of judging with pride. And finally, in verse 12, he says this, there's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor. You know, today has um, been pretty challenging, very direct word that, that James had for us and that I presented to you today. But I wanna make sure you catch this because this is not just judgmental, it's not condemnation. There is hope in this. James is trying to bring um, unity to this body. He's trying to bring uh, reconciliation to people who are in broken relationship. And the way he's telling us to do this, what we see here is to stop being selfish. Over and over and over in these passages, we see that a selfish heart will lead to broken relationships. That conflict within us leads to conflict between us. So how do we fix that? The antidote to selfishness in your life is service. Look at your life. Look at the conflict in you have in relationships around you and ask yourself, how can I serve those people? This is your homework for this week. This is what I want you to do this week. Ask yourself, who am I in conflict with in relationships around me? Maybe it's your boss, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's a brother or sister, whatever it is. Ask yourself, how can I serve them? And you say, Mel, that won't make any difference. It's not gonna fix them. No, it probably won't fix them. But do you know what it might do? might fix you. It might not change your, your, your circumstance or your situation, but it will change you. When we begin to serve others, it changes us. It gives us a different perspective. It drives out selfishness out of our lives. So this is my challenge to you. You have a challenging marriage? Begin to serve your spouse and see what God does in your heart. You're having conflict with your boss? Begin to serve them and see what happens. If you've got conflict with somebody here in this church for some reason, begin to serve them, see what happens. You feel stagnant in your relationship with God, begin to serve and see what happens. It will change everything because it drives out selfishness. Conflict within us leads to conflict between us. To solve that conflict, we take every thought captive. We begin to serve generously and God changes us. And ultimately he changes our circumstance. Let's pray. Lord, I love you so much. I'm so grateful that you love us. 
Thank you for caring for us so much that you sent your son. You gave generously to us. You gave everything. So God, I pray today we wouldn't take that lightly. Lord, we would understand who we are in you, that Lord, we are sinners saved solely by grace through faith. It's not any of our work that saves us. It's only you and your love and your passion, your mercy for us. So God, I pray today you'd help us root out selfishness in our own hearts. I pray that as as you do the work in us, Lord, you would heal brokenness in marriages and relationships. Lord, in workplaces, in, in this church even, God. Lord, if there is conflict in relationship, God, I pray that you would begin to bring health and resolution to it. Bring unity to homes, to workplaces, to neighborhoods, this church. And I pray, God, that you be glorified here. So Lord, have your way among us. Now with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I just wanna ask if you're here today and you're not serving God, you're not walking with God, but you know today that you need to be. You know today that the only way to fix the conflict that's going on in your heart is to submit your heart to God and to let him be Lord of your life. If that's you, I'm not gonna embarrass you or make you come forward. I just wanna pray with you where you are. So if you're here today and you know that you need to be following Christ, you need to make Jesus Lord of your life, I just wanna ask you, would you be bold enough just to slip your hand up real high where I can acknowledge you and I just wanna pray with you where you are. So if that's you, slip your hand up. Thank you, over here on my right, thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am, here, two hands in the center section, praise God. Over here on my left, thank you, sir, on my far left. Thank you, up in the balcony, ma'am, you can put your hand down, praise God. Thank you, here on my far right, thank you. Anyone else, just a few more seconds. If you say, that's me, Mel, pray for me. I wanna make Jesus Lord of my life today. I wanna, I wanna submit this internal conflict to him so I can fix the external conflict. Anyone else, real quickly. Thank you, ma'am, up at the balcony. Praise God. Awesome. Well, this is what I'd like to do. I want every person in this place, whether you raised your hand or not, to say this really simple prayer with me. Say it out loud and say it boldly. Dear Jesus, thank you for saving me. I confess you as Lord and that I need you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me when I was at my very worst. Take this conflict that's within me and change it to peace. Use my life for your glory. I'm never going back to my old ways or my old life or my old thinking. Today, I am yours. Today, you are mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's celebrate that today. Thank you, Jesus. Now listen, if you prayed that prayer, um, whether you raised your hand or not, if you prayed that prayer, you confessed with your mouth a minute in your heart, you're a new creation today. Now, it doesn't mean your life is gonna be perfect. What it means is your circumstances might be the same, but you're made new to walk through those circumstances differently. But we wanna help you with that. And the way we can help you is by you filling this card out. Give us some of your information and drop it in one of our offering boxes in the back of the room before you leave today. You could also drop this at the info center if you'd like. But drop this off in one of those boxes and in the next day or two, we're gonna reach out to you. We're gonna be in contact and we're gonna let you know, hey, here's what your next steps are. Here's how we can help you. Here's some resources to help you live the life that you wanna live. We wanna help you on your way. I'm so excited for what God's about to do in your life. I'm so excited for the decision you've made. I want you to know I'm proud of you. And I'm excited that we get to be part of this journey. Now, this is what's gonna happen right now. Our worship team is gonna lead us in one final song. And as they do, our prayer team is gonna be available on either side of the stage. And if you need prayer for any reason, 
As we begin to sing today, I want you to step out from your seat and come find one of our prayer team members. At the conclusion, in just a moment, Bailey is gonna dismiss us and you'll be free to go. Uh, but if you still need prayer, our prayer team's gonna remain. So if, if you just don't feel comfortable stepping out during worship, uh, stick around for just a moment. Our prayer team will be available following the worship experience as well. Why don't you stand your feet all over the room? We'll worship together one more time and then we'll be on our way. Guys, I truly mean this. I love you more than you know. And I'm so honored I get to be your pastor. Thank you for being here. Have a blessed week. God bless you.